Welcome to Airwave. Airwave is a conversation hosted by me, Morgan Page, where music and technology converge to tell the stories behind the artists and the architects of creativity and technology. Radio is where I first discovered electronic music in the countryside of Vermont, and music and technology provided the path forward. Airwave is an exploration of how people make their art and how technology plays an essential role in the process. The show is largely conversational, but doesn't shy away from going deep and technical in the process. All right, so my guest this week is New York-based producer Sid. Uh, We had a great conversation about the current state of dance music, the future of technology. Uh, He's done some incredible records with Cascade, Don Diablo, Galantis, and many more. He's been a fixture in the house music scene, so you've definitely heard his work out there. And my personal favorite highlight of his career is his remix for Lana Del Rey, the track Summertime Sadness. He did that with Cedric Gervais, won a Grammy for it. So we're going to hear all about that process. A little bit of drama along the way, but that story had to be told. So we got into it. Uh, we had a couple tech issues. Uh, he got very passionate bumping the mic. So you may hear that. Just ignore that. Enjoy the conversation. It's a great one with Sid. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. Okay, so we were talking about the new world of media and what's happening this year. It feels a little crazy. Mm-hmm. We have SiriusXM buying a majority of Pandora. We're seeing uh, AI replacing DJs out there. Have you seen any crazy other new trends happening in the world out there? Yeah, people want to listen to to what they want. I, I think we're in a time where it's just about instant gratification. So, like, I think... People want the song that they want to hear in that moment, and they're going like, to listen to it, you know? Yeah, I feel like these certain services, you've got Apple Music behind a paywall, you've got, um, well, actually, you, know, you, have, you have podcasts on Spotify as well, and there's a paywall for that, but I feel like things are going to change drastically with more of the technology, because you can't get our shows on demand right now on the app on SiriusXM. Right now, it's just, you got to catch it old school broadcast style mm-hmm. directly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you repost yours on like SoundCloud? I, you know, I do it, but we get so many takedown issues. Really? Yeah, it's a big problem. Well, That's one reason I'm doing the show, the interview thing. You can't yeah. take my voice down. Yeah. There's zero music in this show. Yeah. Oh, cool. Maybe some, I'm going to do some sound designs. Can, can we sing? Yeah, we can sing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Swivel was here a few days ago, and he has this new plugin called the Sauce, which is like a full really? chop treatment. I didn't know thing. what you made. Yeah. Is, is that his first plugin? Yeah, first DJ plugin. Swivel? Yeah, oh, the guy cool. that did Don't yeah. Me Down and yeah, yeah. and Yeah, he did his own plugin. The sauce. Yeah. I like it already. Now, I wanted to kind of be kind of cool because on the, on the podcast, I could demonstrate the plugin on my voice as I'm mm. talking about it. It's cool. a whole new theater of the mind. Yeah. yeah, that was sick. All right, so I want to start, let's see, at the beginning, where did all of this start for you? Like, you grew up, and I was reading your background, and you started really early. Yeah, so my dad has still has a, a restaurant and catering hall in New York, and I must have been like probably eight or nine years old, and just 
going there on weekends and my mom, you know, obviously I wasn't there super late, but they would do these private parties in the back. And there was this one guy who was the resident, like DJ that my dad would always book for the, you know, for these events and stuff. And I would, from then I was just fascinated and, and he was such a nice guy um, that he would just be like, yeah, pr- you know, put this fader up or press this button. Um, and I think, you know, I was probably, I'd say I was still, I was in seventh grade. So, you know, 11 or 12 around that time. And I had another friend that we were in class together who was also like always fascinated with music. And we started DJing together. I, I went and I bought like a used Vestax mixer um, and the, this guy, this DJ, he let me borrow like this dual Denon CD player. Um, and that's where we started, you know, just like messing around. Um, and it just grew from there. And through high school, I ended up in my dad's, you know, as I got better, like I figured out all the music because it was a lot of Latin parties. So uh, I started kind of taking over like the parties that that guy was doing. My dad wouldn't say like, you know, book this kid. He'd be like, oh, here's a number of a DJ. Check him out. Not tell him I was his son or anything. And I started getting booked and, you know, was able to make money on like just doing mobile stuff. Um, and then just from the beginning, though, like around that time, I, I ended up buying techniques and uh, there was like a local record shop, you know, close to my house. And I would go there and just from the beginning, I was always like drawn to electronic music, um, especially New York was so kind of so hip hop driven back then. Um, and yeah, it just that's what inspired me to then kind of transition to wanting to learn how to make the music. I remember not being able to afford techniques and thinking like it was it was the holy grail. They were these indestructible wheels of steel. And I, yeah. I was always saving up for an MPC or Technics 1200s. And it was always this insurmountable thing to get a direct drive turntable. Yeah, I mean, my first one, I, I will say my, my mom, this was early on too. She bought me a Newmark Bell Drive. Um, but... It was really once I started doing these mobile parties that I was able to kind of, you know, be self-sufficient and not have to, you know, because they were a lot of money back then. Um, but yeah, and then I was on vinyl for a while. Just I, I, on vinyl, I maybe played like two or three shows, you know, just but it was mostly just as a hobby and for fun. I'm doing that stuff. Um, and then, yeah, it just that's what it was for me. It was, you know, that kind of led me to the producing side, I guess. So when was the tipping point that happened where this was full-time career? Well, I finished college. I went to school for accounting. Um, And my junior year, I had finished... It was like the first record that I ever finished. And I did it in reason. That's what I jumped to first. um, And I sent it to Marcus Schultz. And I... Four weeks later, I get an email back. And Marcus is like, holy shit. Literally his words were, holy shit, this song is incredible. Is it still available? I want to sign it. And I was like, this is some kind of joke or something. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, give me a call. And I was living at home and and he calls me on the phone. And at the time I was such a huge like global DJ broadcast fan, huge Cold Harbor fan. Um, And he's like, yeah, like, you know, I want to sign this. So I ended up signing it to, to... Cold Harbor, which is through Armada at the time. And I remember the night right after the release, like the first time that Marcus was ever 
in New York, he played a show. I think there, it was at the time a club called Spirit, and I, you know, I had no contact to him, like other than email or whatever. And I remember him getting there and kind of right as he's going to go on the stage, I was like, "Yo, I'm so." I had one by a different name. Um, and he's like, his eyes, I remember like his eyes lit up. He's like, man, he's like, I've been playing this track everywhere. Wait till you hear it. And I'd never, never heard it live. Right? Never. I've never heard any, this was the, like, I'd never heard any of my music live outside of my bedroom, you know, or in a car or whatever. And yeah, it was just, that was one of those moments for me that I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, you know? And you know it. And I feel like even the 12 year old Sid, the 12 year old self knows Something happens even back then that triggers that passion. Maybe some people discover it later in life. But yeah. did you know when you were twelve? Oh yeah, my. I still had. I, I, I mean, I don't know where it is right now, but years. So eighth grade, we did. We had like it was like my elementary school, quote unquote, like graduation yearbook, and it put for every person in the class like, what do you want to do? You know, I, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I put down. I was like, I want to be a DJ. You know, and obviously they kind of go hand in hand, but that that was that's what I wrote back back then. Yeah, I feel like you know really. Yeah, I think. And the first time hearing your music live, did you even recognize your song? I mean, I like- no, that's so that's so weird. You say that. I was with a group of friends, and it was like, you know, we're we're in the middle of the crowd at this point, you know. And my buddy says to me, "Carlos, like, I, I think you're. I think he's mixing in your track right now." And he heard it before I did. That's funny you would you say that, like, but yeah, that actually happened. Like I didn't. I was like, oh shit, that is yeah. yeah. I remember playing my music up for the first time through like a real sound system, and the kick completely was unrecognizable <laughs> to me because it's going through all this compression, limited. Yeah. And I still don't even know how live sound totally works. It's a black art to me, mm-hmm. but. But to hear that in the space, in a loud space with yeah. glasses smashing, people screaming. <laughs> uh, I heard, I mean, my music was in an Irish pub, Phoenix Landing in Boston. Damn, that's crazy. And, yeah. and, but it's weird. And that was with live gear. Like, I literally brought the Emu sampler and the MPC oh, and wow. sort of the stuff live. Yeah. So there was no master on the track. So mm-hmm. it was extra chunky. Yeah. That's oh, I had system. no idea about mastering. When I did this track, the same week that I, this is the first thing I really ever finished full arrangement thing and i had read a magazine like that week and because at the time there wasn't like i'm pretty sure youtube already existed but it wasn't there wasn't all these tutorials on really anything and i I would go to barnes and noble i would buy these magazines and i remember reading this article it was a robbie rivera interview and he talked about this concept of sidechain and i before that i had no idea i didn't know what to do it so i did that and then threw on like obviously in mixed it what i i didn't even know what mixing was you know it was kind of that that's where i was um and just threw a limiter on the end and i asked mark do you need me to like send you like without this you know limiter thing or he's like no it sounds great i was like oh all right so it was my (laughs) it wasn't even mastered really like this is that was it like strange so he was manually going through all these submissions by himself yeah yeah assistant I, i don't know that i think I feel like I may have asked him or I heard him say it. I I know he definitely listened through what I... I don't know if I'm making this up, but I feel like I remember like somebody would drop everything into one folder and he would go through and, and check it from there. Wow. Yeah. From there, you had that tipping point, that seminal moment. 
where you signed the track? And did you have other labels making offers? Or nothing. Were, no, what was I had no contact, nothing. What was next was me saying, you know, at the time I was a huge Gabriel Dresden fan also. And I was like, they're using logic. I'm using reason. Like, this reason isn't that good. So I went and I bought like the academic version of reason, of logic and basically started kind of back at zero. And like, I, I obviously was like under the, uh, like the idea of like, I probably need to re- keep releasing music to kind of grow something. But I just, I kind of had a bit of a fluke moment, I think, making that random thing and reason that it was really just, I started over. Um, and I'd sent a couple things to Marcus, but there was no, no real reaction. So I just, you know, kept doing it for fun. And yeah, I guess the next moment for me was, you know, I was, at this time I was probably senior, yeah, senior in college. And I was, I had a residency at this little like downstairs basement lounge in New York City. And um, I ran into a buddy of mine from high school. And he's like, oh, well, this was actually right after I graduated college. This was after I was, I had this residency around that time. Right after I graduated, he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm trying to produce music, you know, DJing. He's like, why don't you come by my dad's studio? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I'd forgotten his dad was uh, Richie Kanata. He was Billy Joel's sax player. Um, And he has, still has to stay an amazing studio in Glen Cove in New York. And he's like, yeah, come by. Like, my dad will give you an internship. And I was thinking, like, I have two older brothers. So I, I knew kind of, I've been able to see in my life the way they've gone through different phases in theirs. And I remember my my, my middle brother, he's, uh, he was always an artist and he's really successful in what he does. But right after graduate college, he was kind of like, you know, hadn't figured it out. And, you know, the kind of patience wore off on my parents where they were like... <laughs> what are you doing, you know? And I was like thinking like, yo, maybe I'm still doing the DJ thing, but maybe if I get this internship, like this will give me, you know, be a step in the right direction. And I don't have to worry about them saying, why aren't you working in accounting? That's what you studied or something like that. So I took this internship and uh, yeah, that was that next moment that I just got lost in studio. And, you know, there was about two or three engineers there uh, the owner, you know, took a liking to me, and after a few months, he'd given me keys to the studio. He was like, you know, whenever nobody's using the rooms, you can use it, you know. Wow. And I was able to kind of, yes, I learned from the engineers, but it wasn't, you know, they weren't fit, like actually necessarily teaching me anything. It was more going in and just like figuring out how to how this stuff worked that I learned, I think, the most. Yeah, and then you know, there's so many talented people out there. I think I just got lucky in meeting certain people that have helped me along the way and it was this guy um richie canada he played sax and he was playing a lot i think every week or something at tau the restaurant in new york wow. and there was a dj there and who would play with him and he was a house dj and he so richie was out from my end i'm hearing oh there's this dj he's he's got a house label he's got He's, he's got an artist project. He's like, I want to bring him to the studio, you know, work with us and like, you know, make some music. And I was like, yeah, cool. So he brought him to the studio one day and he, uh, we connected like, you know, immediately. And I feel like I had so much, I didn't, even though I kind of had that background in electronic music, I really didn't know the history of it at that point. And this guy's like, 
his name is Greg Bahari. He's like an encyclopedia of house and oh. and stuff. And he, um, so I started working with him a lot. And that was that's where I really I think learned not only about sampling but like how to mix a house record. Um, he had a project called Hot Twenty Two, um, and a label called Gossip Records. That was that moment where I transitioned from kind of being at that big expensive studio. You know, he came out a couple times, and then he's like, you know, he's like, you really don't need all this stuff. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, it's gonna sound better. It's an SSL console, Neve, you know, prees, whatever you know, analog EQs and compressors they had. And he's like, honestly, it's, most people can't tell the difference. So he lived in New Jersey. So I started uh, driving down every week and working with him in his studio. And he had just a basic room. And yeah, it was just that kind of stretch that I think I got better and better at just making What years like, was this? In New York, New 2009, 2010. And then what kind of the next step, which is kind of, I think, what it created a lot of opportunities for me was Greg used to live in Miami, worked with this one guy named Mohamed Moretta, who was like this old school DJ from from Miami. And he had done a, this one song called uh, Dominica, Gotta Let You Go. He wrote that song and he was trying to revive that project. And so Greg said, hey, come work with us in the studio in New Jersey. So he came up for a week, we worked, and then he went down to Miami. And then a couple weeks or a month or a couple months later, maybe, Greg calls me, he's like, oh, like, have you heard of this guy, Cedric Gervais? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, you know, he's looking for someone to help him mix, you know, these songs that he has. And Mohammed, you know, said, oh, there's this kid in, in New York who's, you know, really talented and, you know, you should check him out. So that's how, that's how the connection to, to Cedric happened. Random, you know? What was the first song? Uh, well, the first time I went down, he had like a whole bunch of production already done. And he's like, you know, these are done. I just I need, I need to get them mixed. I was like, yeah, sure, I can mix them. So that was like maybe, maybe the first I went down. I remember like the first time I think he was ha I hope he was happy. Honestly, I was so nervous. Like and this I, was just mixing at first and then led to more musical production. Work. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the, at the beginning and you know, I kind of could fumble. I I know never went to school for this. I and the way Greg taught me was more like by feel instead of like technical how to do this shit. So I I knew how to get stuff to sound good, but I was I felt like I was kind of faking it, you know. Like when I was working with Cedric, I was like, I don't know what the what the fuck I'm doing, but you know I'll make I'll figure out how to make it sound good. And then I remember I think the first thing was he had this one vocal, and I like didn't love the production and I was like it's Cedric like you know I produced too like why don't we give this a shot and try to come up with a new production on this together and he's like yeah and then that's when you realize I could kind of do you know everything around uh, across the board so that's when we really started working together as far as you know collaborating on on the production as well and the first thing we did was a song called Molly right so that was, you know, I, I actually, I make, I'm lying. We probably did a bunch of other records before that, but I'm pretty sure that was definitely the first major one that I worked on with him that that came out. How long was it till Summertime Sadness? I don't know, 2010. So it was, we put out a bunch of stuff, you know, in between. Um, maybe, maybe less than two years. It's got to have to have been less than two years. 
you eventually got your proper credit for that. So you won a Grammy yeah. for the remix, Summertime yeah. Sadness. Still one of my favorite remixes of all time. <laughs> Timeless. Um, talk about that moment, that whole process of uh, going. To, you went to the Grammys, though, right? You yeah. Walked, you walked the yeah, I was there. Yeah, I was there. Um, you know, look, I, I, I never... It's not like I didn't know what I was signing up for. You know, I was there to kind of... You know, Cedric has a vision for something. I'm, you know, going to produce it with him and and you know knowing this is Cedric's thing um and yeah I I think though like it was a little bit of me just that whole situation it was incredible you know obviously it's one of those things that universally it's doesn't matter where you are in the world people know what a Grammy is I think for my family it was kind of one of those moments that they like said wow you know like it was kind of like he's been doing this for a while now and you know this he's accomplished this you know it's validation validation yeah and then more than for me than you know i think for them but yeah obviously i did a lot on that and it took me i was on the presumption that i was going to get the grammy right away but i didn't uh, obviously because cedric's name was on the remix uh and i think you had a lot to do with helping me make sure that got the conversation started yeah so you know they were able to go back and you know i'm the label copy you know, my name was there. I think Jimmy Douglas. Yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy he was really the first. Yeah, I can't take I can't take credit for it, but Jimmy yeah. did a lot. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I was able to get my own Grammy, and you know, I'm really proud of it, and it's amazing. Yeah. Where's the Grammy right now? Uh, in my bedroom. Nice. Yeah. Because <laughs> I have my studio separate, and it's not like the most secure building. But once I, you know, I'm going to be building a new studio soon. I'm definitely going to have it in there. Um, okay, so you mentioned your your new studio. What's mm. what's the new setup going to be like? So, uh, kind of came upon an opportunity that I'm going to be buying buying a house in in Bushwick, you know, where I live now. And the downstairs, I want to just build out like a proper studio there and have it at home, you know, for one. So, once I do that, then you know, I'm excited. I have a room like yours. So you've been you know? commuting to the studio. I mean, well, it's yeah. not. Too, I mean, I live right off the L train in New York and it's two stops on the train so I'm at the studio in 10 minutes you know I am jealous of people that have that dedicated workspace that is a little bit of commute where you're checking your mix downs during the drive I think that's really mm-hmm. cool but I, I hate the feeling of like the clock is ticking on studio time mm-hmm. but I do love what a lot of guys are doing where they're doing Airbnbs and for the budget of what a, a day rate would be for a studio you could get a whole house yeah and I think these days the the hardware and the software is so good. You don't have to have a treated room. You could literally just have a room that is um, is a theater room. You know, maybe the movie theater room. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do. It just has enough soft furniture in it, and record your parts there. Bring a bunch of UAD stuff. Yeah. Track with a twin. I mean, you've got like major records like Post Malone stuff is just tracked with a, a twin and a Sony mic. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's a new era. Yeah. Okay, so walk me through some of the collaborations like. Cascade, probably one of the most notable collaborations. What's it like working with all these producers? And I mean, everybody has their own method. How do you approach it? Um, it's, you know, it's different every time. I'd say, well, the stuff with Don was first. So I, I met Don. Diablo? Don Diablo, yeah. At the time, he was being managed by someone else within Cedric's management company. And he had been kind of transitioning sound-wise. He was doing like the really electro stuff. And then he had finished a track called Starlight that was coming out on Axstone. So, you know, that's where he was going musically. And they connected us, you know, not to say for me to 
you know, help him make his music. It was more like, just talk to Carlos and, you know, whatever. And so we connected over Skype and we just hit it off. First thing we did together was a remix to hit people out a song called Give It All with Alex Adair. Uh, no, Alex Claire. And it was just, he's insanely talented in so many ways. And it was, he's like, listen, I got this break idea. And I was like, cool, I'll come up with a drop idea. And we would just toss files back and forth. Um, and we did a couple like that. And then finally, like after that, when we did another one called Prototype, which was the same thing, he's like, I got this break idea. I was like, I got this drop idea. And it's like half a step up or something. And I changed the key and, um, and it worked. And that one, that one was called Prototype. And then he came to New York and, you know, he's, this is when I was still living at home. He came in into my house and we did, we were like, let's do something different. Like I was kind of over, a little over what was happening. You know, let's make some housey style thing that maybe couldn't figure out a way to fit in our sets. And we did a track called Got Me Thinking. And we had that idea of like just having these like big buildups when it's, was nobody, I think that wasn't making like super EDM stuff was doing. We did that one, came out on size X and a lot of people, I think if I have to say a moment that helped break me as a, you know, DJ, producer, artist, it was probably that song. Um, we put that out and Tiesto followed me on Twitter. You know, Steve Angelo followed me on Twitter and it opened those doors just for myself to be like, all right, once I have the right record to get to them, like I have that space. Get the cosign. Yeah. Around that time, I had heard Cascade was already, he had done a mashup of... Uh, got me thinking with Last Chance um, and he was playing it a lot and you know working with Cedric I had this guy Greg Bahari was not only mentoring me through all of this and but he was almost like a manager but I got to a point where I was like I need I really need somebody in my corner and I literally I'd heard Ed, Ed Shapiro you're, you're with Ed right? yeah. yeah give me Ed Shapiro on the phone yeah <laughs> Ron Carey's lawyer yeah, or we're, lawyer yeah we're my lawyer. we're officially like his least favorite uh, clients now, unless we mention him in a song, right? Like Mariah Carey. So I, I had heard his name. I googled it. There was a number, and I called it. And his secretary put me through to him. That's how I met Ed. And I told him I was like, yeah, I kind of want a Grammy. You know, blah blah. He's like, what? He's like, when you're back in New York, like, let's think up. So first thing he did was ask Cascade. He's like, oh, have you heard of this guy Sid? And he was like, yeah, I've been playing this track. Got me thinking. So that so Ed was the one who introduced us, and it was over email. Um, and at first it was super casual. He's like, "Just keep sending me music," and I was like, "Yeah, sure." Long story short, there was a one, there was a couple records that he heard, and I think that's when Ryan Cascade was like, "I believe in this kid. I want to help him." And and I ended up signing with his manager at the time, Stephanie LaFera. He was like, "You know, sign with her. She's a great manager. She knows how I work. We'll be able to kind of help you in this." You know, situation if I'm if we're doing collab or whatever. Surprisingly, the first collab we did was a song called "Us," and everyone thinks that he he brought the vocal and like break, and then I did the trap. But in this one, it was actually the opposite. I had this track idea, and I sent it to um, what were their names? Uh, they did "Runaway" for Galantis actually, mm-hmm. um, and they wrote that top line, and then I sent that to. I had over my chords, whatever. Then I sent the idea that I had to Ryan, and then he worked on it and made it into what it was. But that was the first one. Yeah. 
I feel like it's crazy because I feel like it's a little more underground than some of the, the main vocal singles Cascade's done, but has streaming numbers are amazing on it. What do you think resonated with that versus some of the other tracks? I think, obviously, you know, Ryan has had countless of those records that really resonate with people and, and kind of bring out a, or connect with them on an emotional level. Um, I'd say that was the first one where I ever had one, an experience where... I literally was walking through a festival that I had played one summer and um, it was a couple and they took off their ring and inside the ring was like the lyric of of us. And I was like, holy shit, that's crazy. So, I don't know. I mean, that's that was my experience with that song that it really, I think, connected with people. When you get the tattoos and the inscriptions, you're yeah. on the right track. Thank you. Nobody has any sit tattoos yet. I haven't made it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Sweet memories is slowly, you know. It's been, it. I think for me, that's that one record. It doesn't matter where I play; it always ends up in my set. Not that I focus on numbers or anything, but it's still there a couple years later, uh, streaming wise. Has it changed how you navigate things now? Because I feel like every year it's a new approach, a new way of thinking about your business and the sound you make. What's what's changed for you? I think around the time it got me thinking, you know, I was a little lost because I had had this success with Cedric, you know, making these, you know, kind of more progressive anthemic things. And I had made a few of for myself, but obviously I didn't have the platform for it to kind of reach people. The bubble was bursting a little bit, I think. Then I saw like what kind of reaction got this track got me thinking had. So I kind of, you know, there's something there that could be not that saying I was calculating that's what I should do. It was more like, I'm good at that stuff. Let me just have fun in the studio. So that was when I did like No, which came out on, on Tiesto's musical Freedom. And around that time, I obviously had this team of people. And I think I've nobody ever, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have a team with Stephanie and, and with Ed. And I never felt like they were telling me what I should do. It's more like they're really good at what they do. So I felt like I kind of put this pressure on myself, having signed at the time to Big Beat, to kind of go the more, try to have those like crossover things when maybe I should have stuck to doing stuff like no, you know, we're sweet memories, I think still in that vein. And more recently, it's, it's I have more, I have more fun just kind of being able to experiment and, and not focus on that stuff. Just like make cool stuff that I want to go out and play this weekend, you know? Because I think it's stressful to try and just make Hit after yeah. hit. Uh, I mean, even Swedish House Mafia said that. Like, that you get tired of that chase. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's more notes from the label, from management. And, I mean, are you making music for management? That's not why you do it. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's, it can be, it can make the process way less fun. And yeah. you've got to make it for yourself first, right? And mm -hmm. then can, you can kind of tear it down for the fans. But you've got to lead the fans, too. So mm -hmm. do you get fans that like the older stuff you have like they divide into different camps there's definitely a, a little bit of a divide so, you know there's certain records that it could be like a more undergroundish club versus you know a more commercial club that resonate in both um you know but there's you know i really do still i enjoy making melodic stuff and i i think those kind of connect with people on a deeper deeper level you know like i miss you you know that's one that really was able to have a connection with a lot of different people. I've been kind of stuck in this middle ground where I'm not going to stop doing both. I think, you know, right now I've 
launching, you know, my label night service only and and stuff. There's been more of a focus on the club stuff, but I'm still going to release, you know, melodic stuff, but without the pressure, you know. Is that uh, through a distributor or self-release completely? Or? So I launched it. Uh, I did an admin deal with Spinning, so they're handling all the back end and. Um, all the contracting and stuff like that, but all the creative side is is me, which is great. It kind of gives me, you know, gives me the ability to not have to worry about any of that. Focus on A and R and finding guys that I think are making great music and signing them to the label. Is it different now with Spinin being owned by Warner Brothers that they purchased them? Warner, yeah, Warner. Mm-hmm. Well, Warner, yeah, they've even changed the name and mm-hmm. the logo and everything now. Is it a different mm-hmm. flow or a different staff, or is it still main well, like the, the main guys? Well, Yorn, shout out Yorn. He was there. He was one of the first people who really believed in me at the beginning, you know. And um, he's still there, and he, I think he's such like a big part of the heart of of spinning. Um, so it's and it's been great to be able to work with him on this. Um, I don't think it's changed. I, the only thing I will say is like, you know, they definitely have their systems going through. You're going through Warner, you know, you're not going through the little distributor. I've gotten warned a couple of times, you know, you got to submit your stuff quicker as far as leaving enough time. Is it six week turnaround? I think at least six to eight weeks yeah. that they're at. It's still insane to me. Like, yeah, especially, you know, that. we live in a time where it's just instant gratification. You push a button, it should be on Spotify, you know, but the world doesn't work that way. So that's one thing I've had to learn, make sure I'm planning ahead. You know, it's not really the artist that I'm signing, it's more, <laughs> you know, my own stuff, but yeah. yeah. Are you doing TikTok and are you keeping up with all the platform arbitrage? I'm not using TikTok for me as an artist. I go on TikTok because I think there's hilarious stuff on there. The reason I, I guess, got TikTok is I had a bunch of friends who would just repost Insta stories of really funny TikTok videos. So that's how I kind of got into it. I have a cousin. She she's younger. She goes to USC and she's like has a million TikTok followers and she's like an ambassador for TikTok. And I think it's a great way to engage with your audience. I think some people are going to get heat for like trying to be on TikTok because it's the thing to do. But it's like anything else, you know, people want to know who you are as an artist. And it's a great way to not have the seriousness of of an Instagram post. And it's the an fact that it's changing the charts. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's changing how people consume music. Yeah. Well, I think that's what now people are going to ruin because they're going to try to capitalize on it. You know, things have happened organically, I think, for the most part. I've heard stories that of people kind of paying a little bit of money to a couple of people who have a big following and you know, it creating that viral moment for a song and it really translating to, to Spotify plays. But so that's the only worry about what can happen on that end, I think. I think it's scary to create a body of work on any platform and then having it disappear. Like you've seen Vine stars uh, foreclosing on their houses. You know, guys are getting $200,000 checks at some point mm-hmm. and, you know, it's not sustainable. It's like yeah. you got to be collecting email opt ins and phone numbers. And are you doing the text thing? No. Like community, I'm doing a, a custom version of it with mm. Ringy, but it's cool because everybody opens their texts. Mm-hmm. So I think it's funny. I think yeah, text and emails are never going to go away. I agree. I, I I had that moment with Snapchat. I was, you still use it? No, I never yeah. really did because I my perception of it as you know as an artist, it's what do people say? I want to get booked at this club and this club. What are they going to do? They're going to go to your Instagram. 
You can go to your Spotify. They're going to see how many followers you have. Snapchat, you can have a million people following you, but no one outside of that can really see it. Nobody can just go to your Snapchat and see like how you're doing it. So that was my thing that I was like, I'll have Snapchat for me and my friends to like goof around, but it's not something that I'm going to use for my like artist platform. Do you think it's going to change now? I feel like we're on the precipice of all this technology changing. We talked about SiriusXM, Pandora, but now we've got offline storage lockers with streaming. Um, a lot of these services like Beatport, uh, what is it, Beatport Link or whatever, you know, they're, they're dovetailing all of these, all of SoundCloud, Spotify, all this integration into Pioneer World. Mm-hmm. It's able to save it on USB sticks. It seems like it's kind of limited, but do you think this is where it's headed or is this a sideshow? You know, I bought my nephews like this little, Pioneer makes this like tiny controller. I got them Wii DJ or they had like an iPad. And it's insane that you can link your Spotify account and have access to all of Spotify and mix with it. Like, you know, I think it is the future. I really do. You know, when I was back doing these mobile parties, you know, my dad didn't have internet at the beginning. And I would stress the fuck out, like, if I don't have this song that they want or something, you know? And the ability to be like, oh, shoot, I've, you know, I forgot to put this on my USB or I wish I had gotten this before the show and be able to just instantly have it. It's kind of amazing. Doesn't it feel very static? Like you, you're headed to the gig and in your mind you're like, shit, I want to move around some stuff. I mean, not that, you know, you'd have it pre-planned or anything, but in your mind, in my mind, I'm always like, oh, I need, this song isn't set up. I don't have my cue points here mm. for this track. Mm. And I mean, Pioneer's got a very limited version of Rekordbox. Do you use Rekordbox? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm amazed how many guys don't use Rekordbox mm-hmm. and they're playing on CDJs. It's like killing, shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. <laughs> like, but some people are old school. You know, mm-hmm. It's hard to change the way you work with DJ. I don't do cue points or anything. I do oh, wow. it, obviously, to analyze um, waveforms and no to organize. at all? No. I mean, the, what are the new ones? The Mac 2 or what are the new Nexus? Oh, the Nexus 2s. Yeah. So what was a game changer for me was Beat Jump. Like, I don't really like to... If it's a big festival, I kind of have an idea of where I want certain songs to be in my set. But like most shows, like I'm, I don't really like to pre-plan. Um, but, and I don't use cue points because I'm lazy. Are <laughs> no. you doing hard edits? No, I use, so on the Nexus 2, they have a beat jump. The way you could do it in Tractor. Um, it's on the screen. I can skip ahead to, and be in whatever section I want in a matter of seconds. Um, the problem is sometimes you play in a club that doesn't have it, has the old ones, and like it becomes a problem. But I like with, like you mentioned, uh, it's a family that's using the Wii DJ, and it's becoming almost this prosumer thing, if, if not even just a hobbyist thing, where people are consuming music uh, on all these different apps with Pioneer. You don't have to be a professional DJ to enjoy DJ. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously, it's a big world with mobile DJs, wedding DJs, that's a much bigger industry than I even realized. Mm-hmm. But I love that you could be getting all those streams from people just enjoying your music at a party, and it's not a passive playlist. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. Because yeah. it's one thing to have a gatekeeper like Austin curating stuff, and he does a great job. Um, and maybe that role will be more of a panel of people in the future. We'll see. But these are very powerful roles. But if people are their own gatekeepers, and they can be actively playing it rather than just waiting for a playlist to queue things up like a jukebox. I think mm. it's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, there's always going to be people with more curiosity to be a DJ or, you know, kind of dictate what is playing when. So 
I think the way that Spotify's done it and obviously the way you can share playlists and stuff and then on this end what you could do with just a little controller and we DJ or whatever the hell it's or DJ um, is awesome do you think Denon's gonna make an impact I tried them out before they were out at the, it was a couple of years ago at EDC Orlando and I was like these are sick you know but the problem is you know they're so expensive and most clubs already had to bite the bullet and get Pioneer it's such a hard it's so hard to be, become the industry standard I played on them I won shows after Tiesto, and I like, it was at Miami Music Week, it was at Live, places rammed. I had been told not to use record, because you can do it, I think, with Recordbox playlists. I figured out a way to like, kind of have my music in just folders, but you know, whatever. <laughs> with it, I was still, within the first song, I accidentally, I would hit the loop button, and I was like, I literally have to turn around and be like, yo, Help. Tice, how do I get it out of the loop? <laughs> and he turns around, starts laughing, and just like un unclicks it. And he's no longer using it. No, he's back on Pioneer, yeah. I love the feel. I mean, I've had a very brief experience with them, and it seemed like they were way brighter mm -hmm. than CDJs. But I also have seen the new Nexus that's coming. You've seen it, huh? And they've, it's, I can't say anything, but they are, there's some similarities. Yeah. I think it's been stuff that's been in the works for a while. But yeah. I think it was a wake-up call for Pioneer, to be yeah. honest. Like, there's certain features that I think people wanted that I had, you know, even the beat jump that, you know, that Pioneer added. This was an update because it's on the touchscreen. And it was around the time that Denon had came out and they had dedicated beat jump buttons. And that, I think, Cascade, I think, was also, he mentioned that too, like, having that on the Pioneer. Yeah, I, it's just, you know, you I... I see Oliver Heldens a bunch. I, I toured with him a, a little bit. Every time I see him, I was like, "You still using the Denons?" He's like, "Yeah, I love them." But he he has the obviously the uh, he's able to he has a pair like that he can he has a team that he could take them or the club is going to get them for him. Right. They drop you know? them out. I don't think a club is going to necessarily shell out to have a pair of those if I request them. Um, but but yeah, they are great. But I'm really curious to see what Pioneer comes with next. It is good, though. I think there always needs to be competition yeah. in the world. And I think Pioneer, you know, ever since they sold or what do they do? Or they, always private equity companies duck in and yeah. buy a chunk of companies and rename it, and it just passes through hands. So I think it got split initially from the TV and car radio mm -hmm. division and these, you know, these mega Japanese corporations that make everything from lawnmowers to yeah. CDJs, you know. Yeah, I've had one of the Sleeping Boo, um, Mike from Sleeping Boo, he came by my studio and he brought like a couple of the pieces that they've made. And it's like, it's amazing what they're doing. You know, the, uh, what's it called? Is it the Squid? It's like, oh, a, yeah. Oh, it's Sequencer? so cool. Yeah, yeah I got to try that. Yeah. I told them, you know, I went over there for some R&D stuff to the Tokyo office, mm -hmm. headquarters. I was like, you guys, I don't think they've implemented this, so I'm not going to get in trouble. But I said, I want you guys to make like a little matrix in the arrangement so that I don't have to do a destructive edit every time I want to like skip these ridiculously long open breakdowns mm -hmm. everyone still puts in their tracks. Yeah. I, I still don't understand that. Like, I mean, it's cool to have, uh, you got your two drops, you got your two, maybe some variations, mm -hmm. but people leave these wide open breakdowns where you feel kind of naked playing it mm -hmm. live so i always have to do edits mm -hmm. everybody edits differently but i wanted a way to have it preset so it would skip it without having to rebounce it cut it and rebounce it in ableton every time yeah but maybe we'll see that someday um okay so getting into like more tech stuff tell me about your setup your current studio and and some of the changes you're going to make right now current studio 
MacBook Pro. I do everything on my laptop. Just because of traveling, I just wanted one machine. And I was, I was using a laptop already, you know, for a long time. Um, I had, I recently got an Apollo, the 8X, nice. which sounds amazing. Um, I'll be, I was, before that, I was, I had an ensemble still. And just converters are great. Like, I can hear the difference. I just splurged a little bit, which is glorified volume now, but I got the, the Grace Design. One well, says the, the decibels you're admiring. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. I had an SPL one before, and this sounds also amazing. Slate mic, I, I love it. I'll record in the studio. I treated the room treated GIK acoustics. I've been using that stuff for a long time. You using a lot of UAD, any go-to UAD plugins? Yeah. Honestly, a little bit less, though, just because I hate having to connect shit. There's something about, sometimes I'll come up with an idea, just I'll sit on the couch with my laptop. So I, I stopped using until the very end. I'll use the Pultec EQ a lot, uh, Shadow, the Shadow Hills compressor. Is that your mastering chain? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I'll put on drums. For a long time, I was using Precision Maximizer a lot. I still love that. On the thing. limiter. You stopped using it? I got some, I was sworn to secrecy, but I, I have a new thing. It's not a UAD, it's better. I, I, I can't explain it. But it's an invisible limiter? No, I was using invisible limiter too. It's something else. Shout out to Franklin, this sick Italian engineer. Really, really talented guy. Um, what else am I using from UAD? I'll use the new, the well, not new now, but the, the SSL channel strip. I'll use the Neve channel strip a bunch. I'll use a lot of Ableton stock stuff though. And then I got Moog, Sub-37. I have a, a Minilog. I have a Virus TI that I just turned on for the first time in like three years. I feel like everybody's got a virus sitting in the corner of their studio that's not hooked up. Yeah. I don't know who would do that. I had two previous ones. I, the first one I, I bought, I sold. And then I was like, why did I sell it? Bought another one, and then I sold that one. As soon as I didn't have it, I was like, I really want it. And then I like bought another one used. But I, I never use it. It's so stupid. I, but now I'm not going to sell it because I'm going to want it when I don't have it. You can't see it, but in my studio, I have a virus DI2, I think. Mm -hmm. But something when it's rack mounted and there isn't a keyboard attached to it, I end up not using stuff. So now I get everything with the keyboard. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a weird conundrum because it sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. I made a splice pack with it and it's, it sounds incredible. And I'm like, but I never use it. Yeah. Honestly, is, you know this guy, Seven Skies? Yeah. He kind of put me back onto it a little bit. So I've been, me I've been messing with it uh, again because of him. You know, he, what did he say? There's certain things that you can do on the virus that just do not come close with plugins, like with synth, like soft synth plugins. So like the processing in there? The yeah, the phase, like I believe them. And he showed me. Yeah, it's, I, I'll never sell it, I guess. But, I feel like instruments you can't lose. Yeah. Like we can often get into the weeds buying preamps, comparing preamps and compressors. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why outboard software, outboard gear and software become like this thing of comparison maybe because there's so many damn plugins but mm -hmm. i feel like i never regret the instrument purchases yeah unless it's like with the moog one or you know seven thousand dollar synth which yeah. i have not bought i heard above and beyond re uh, return theirs oh wow oh man yeah big I, gossip yeah i think the next thing honestly i don't want to go too crazy into modular stuff but i think the next i want to buy a couple semi-modular pieces that's probably the next thing I'll buy upward. Because I feel like you can, there's stuff that you can do on that that you can't 
is harder to recreate in software. But other than that, like, yeah, I use Diva, which kind of recreates a lot of these analog synths. And it sounds amazing. Sounds so you know? similar. Yeah, other than that, I've been on my Focal monitors for a while. Twins. The twins yeah. and yeah. the sub. And that's it. And you're mixing, mastering, doing everything yourself, or, or doing stem mastering with someone else? For them, I've always mixed everything myself, and I'll make like a mock master to test out. And some stuff I've released will just be, you know, my master. But almost 90%, um, I sent to, I have a master guy that I've been using forever. Um, his name is Ricardo Gutierrez, ricardomasters.com. Nice. And he's, you know, he's somebody that's kind of been there as I've grown. And I met him actually through Cedric as he was doing the, the um, mastering all the Cedric stuff back then. And he's like this guy who's just constantly learning. He, he's a guy who went from being completely analog to being completely in the box. You know, he's killing it. He's mad. Like, I think he's, he's great. Dude, I messed with all that like analog summing for a while. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell the difference. Like, I feel like it was, it's good and it works for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but I did it and I just, it was more about the converters going in and out. Maybe mm-hmm. it just, the waveforms look a little different, mm-hmm. but it wasn't this night and day arms open analog, super wide sound that people were saying. Yeah. Was. But then, you know, you got guys like Luca, Studio DMI, he loves just slamming his stuff through outboard gear. There's so much to be said for that clipping. Or- yeah, I think like the analog distortion, analog, the analog clipping is, I think, where the magic is, yeah. you know? You can push stuff a little further. Yeah, maybe and- but I think the style of music that we make, it's like everything is not meant to be distorted. I think different, there's different styles of music that I think it, it might be more noticeable. Just throw OTT on it. Yeah. We're going to throw OTT on anyway. I can't believe how many sessions I get. Yeah. And it's. I think they sound amazing with this effect on it, but it's. Mm-hmm. I'm working on a track right now. This guy's got OTT on every channel. <laughs> and he's doing all stuff with stock plugins and his total unknown producer. And it sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Sounds fat. It's got on the master. It's got on the individual plugins. I'm like, Jesus. I'll still do it. If, if all else fails, we're like, let me try to just throw on OTT. I think Saturn is the new OTT. Yeah. Like... A lot of people are using that for the same kind of effect now. You know, it's a secret weapon. Maybe it's not, but that SBL twin tube that UAD just oh, yeah. is incredible. Yeah. Like I throw that even uh, even though the Nexus presets are pretty processed, mm. but even some of the the Tiesto pack, whoever made that, probably mm. Sevens guys, throw the SBL twin mm. tube on there, and it's un- they do that, and then that substance, the UAD mm. substance, uh, Brainworks plugin, incredible. I've been I only started using the twin tube recently on the master without oh wow and this is again franklin uh this guy's a he's like try it and it's just uh just the harmonics not the just like disabling the distortion but just using the harmonics knob wow yeah yeah the, i mean there's so many ways to do this stuff you know everyone has their own way it's, um, it's a lot to juggle i think i know the thing i struggle with is is I can get this crazy fat bass sound or this lead, like I can get these individual elements processed so perfectly, but balancing that mm-hmm. so that it has its moment to shine in the mix, so that the drum fill doesn't get lost leading up to the drop, mm-hmm. the drop hits. I mean, there's only so much energy and so much bandwidth you can have at that one point in the arrangement. It's, I mean, that is working with intention and getting it to sound that fat and that full at the end of the process. Mm-hmm. That's for me, that's the hard part. Yeah. Like yeah. you can get it, but it's like you got to preserve it because as soon as you start stacking stuff and layering and fear stacking, you know, you, yeah. you don't have enough and you <laughs> add more. And then things are 
we'll just start phasing out at mm-hmm. some point. Yeah. Yeah, do I'm you, great. Do you ever, when you're getting stuff, when you're playing it live and you're hearing how different it is, I mean, you're hearing your stereo monitors, you're hearing a very different version than the crowd hears, which is kind of funny because you're hearing, you're hearing a little bit of the room, you're hearing your, your near field monitors, whatever they are, L acoustics. Mm-hmm. Do you think about that what gets lost in translation with mono and mono environment or stereo environment, or you just, just make it as good as you can? When I'm first testing out something, I'm really, I'm pretty confident in everything other than the low end. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to pay attention to more how the kick and the bass work together. And then compared to everything else I played up to that point and vocal level, but I don't really worry about, I mean, I'm conscious of it. I mean, I've spoken to engineers that are, I have a good friend of mine, Ariel. Ariel Burjo, and he said to me flat out, he's like, yeah, it's phasing. And I was like, I don't worry about that stuff too much. I mean, my master guy's just helping me out and fixing a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think the, just for me, the most important is kick, low end, and then the rest is kind of secondary. Because if you have that, that's going to be what's going to have the most impact as far as in a club, I think. That's just, that's the only thing that I'm kind of focusing on. I'm very over analytical about everything I do. So it's never perfect. That's the one thing that I get lost on. Like I could spend a week mixing, so trying to mix something just to go back to the first version. Go backwards. Yeah. yeah. I did this track called um, She Wants the D, which came out on Steve Angelo's size. And I remember I did the whole thing in four or five hours. And that was version one. And I sent it to Kreider and he was like, yeah, I love this. And then I spent a week working on it. And then I sent him another version. He's like, no, no. He's like, go back to that first version. And I was like, all right, fine. And then it just, I have this weird, like, either I'm, you know, get obsessive or I just get, like, the opposite of obsessive. And I'm just like, I don't fucking care anymore. So for that one, I just, like, was like, all right, well, I sent the first version to Steve. And he was playing, it was my master that he was playing for till the release, really. Um, And then I, I got it mastered. I think Ricardo... Pretty sure Ricardo did that one. Yeah, I think that relationship, especially for the music we make, is is the most important. Everything else kind of gets lost a little bit, I think. There's always going to be some compromise. Yeah. Some sounds are going to step on each other. Yeah. So we a lot of your records have uh, their their root is the sample, mm-hmm. like with the No record. Where do you where are you finding these samples? Well, my management wishes I never sample again. <laughs> They're like, please stop sampling. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes it it'll just be. I think for no, I had come up with the idea for the for the groove of it, and I just the melody popped in my head, and then I found the acapella. Did you have to clear that one? Oh yeah, but you, that was <laughs> that was GLC a crazy sample. one. Yeah, so my my team made artwork, and we came up with a plan to do a free download, and I DM'd it to Tiesto. I was like, hey man, I'm gonna be putting this out uh, as a free download, and he listened. He's like, what? He's like, no, no, no. He's like, let me help you clear it. I said, dude, if you can get this thing cleared, sure. And uh, so I didn't give it away for free. And that was around, that was before Miami Music Week, I think, whatever year that was. And then they tried for like eight or nine months and nothing. And Ed had helped me clear, he had connected me with this company that helped me clear another sample. I said, you know what? I got a call from my manager. They're like, Carlos, like, after like eight months or whatever, Musical Freedom was like, you know, we're going to just, because I'm sure my manager was bugging them a lot about it, but they were like, you know, they're going to stop trying. It's been so long. And I called this one guy and I was like, listen, 
I know it's a long shot. It's probably impossible, but I, you know, sampled TLC, no scrubs. And the guy's like, well, he's like, I'm actually very close with them, you know. Um, and he was, this guy was able to get it cleared. You know, a year, like a year wow. after. So, so somebody just blowing it off? at, at you know, No, I don't know. Maybe they just couldn't reach, you know, sometimes it's, I don't know who was managing them at the time. This guy was able to get it done. And, and it's crazy because that's how Creepin, I put on another TLC sample called Creepin because part of the deal was, well, if you do a remix for Creep, for, I think there was like a fee that they waived as far as like the master side. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then No did its thing. And I was like, I'm sitting on this. I kind of want to put it out. And I waited and waited and waited. And I just got to a point. I just hit the guy. I was like, listen, are you, if they're not going to do anything with this, let me just pay the sample clearance and let me put it out. He was like, let me ask. And sure enough, like that's how I got that one done. So because it's usually an advance fee and like half of publishing or all yeah, publishing. Yeah, exactly. Depending on how bad. I mean, like the Tiesto split with Chainsmokers... I remember looking at the writing list and being like, wow, there's a lot of writers in this track. It was like, well, those are all the writers on the, the sample. Mm. I don't I forget if it was a sample or a cover. But I can't believe how many of these tracks are cleared on spinning mm. that are, I mean, a lot no, of No, they are very, very, like, uh, strict about it. You know, they will not put something out if it's not cleared. But it's like a machine, it feels like, over there. Like, yeah. I don't know but how I mean, they do it. We got a lot of people, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on. But yeah, they clear everything. I never realized how big these operations are. Like Armada has over a hundred people at the office mm. in the Netherlands. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Spinning is is still massive. Yeah. You just think of dance labels being these skeleton crews of people, uh, but not when it's Europe. Yeah, that's <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Are you still doing stuff with Big Beat? Or totally um, separate? No, no. The you know, I um, finished my deal that I was in with them. Um, and they're, they're still great friends. I, I still, I'm probably down the line, I'm, you know, hopefully I'll do something again with them. But I've just been kind of focused on, you know, I think for me it was, it was latching on to, you know, Don Diablo and Hexagon, you know, kind of to help create more awareness about the music and the same thing, you know, with musical freedom. Um, and now launching my label, that's kind of been the focus for me. It's just, kind of launching this through my own releases, get the awareness up, then start signing stuff. And are you mentoring up-and-coming talent, or what's the what's your, the deal flow like? It's really kind of up-and-coming guys that I think are sick, you know, and they have stuff going on already. So it's not, I wouldn't call it mentoring, but it's just like, you know, I'm trying to create my own kind of brand that eventually I can be throwing parties, and it's like creating, kind of already having, like, this crew of guys that I believe in that I think make cool stuff, and... Uh, to eventually have them on a night, you know, Miami or do a festival stage down the road. So that's that's the ultimate goal. I'm, I'm listening to a lot of demos. There's certain guys that I kind of help as far as maybe not this one, but, you know, kind of give them advice on the music itself. But it's hard, man. It's a lot of between that and the radio show every week that I'm, I do everything myself. It's just it's listening to a lot of music. But are you hearing anything in these demos that you'd advise people not to do. For people listening to this that want to get music your way and want to blow up and get the Sid co-sign, what are you hearing people doing wrong? I don't think it's necessary. There's no wrong way to do anything. I just tell people, like, if they're going for style, make sure you're referencing other records that you know are big in that style, you know, especially for the, specifically for 
drum sounds and stuff because drums are so important in this so that's the one thing it's like oh you're doing this like you know reference this track or um because at the end of the day like that as a foundation of a specific style i think that's so important that's probably the main thing i'll say you can't like do a rock kick and the, the drop yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> or can you I don't maybe that's the new thing it could be rock will make its comeback in 30 years <laughs> yeah are you doing any live instruments on the tracks or just or just keeping it sample focused and I've been doing a bunch of guitar driven stuff just mostly they're sam- obviously samples <laughs> yeah. but nothing like played live and and these up and coming guys that you are bringing to the fold the label where are they where are they coming from some are guys that um this kid Franklin and Foley I've known them already they're kind of friends other ones is just from music I'm playing in the radio show if it's a name that maybe you know, hasn't popped up yet. It's been a great introduction where, like, I'll play it in the radio show and, you know, they'll DM me or, uh, and be like, oh, thanks for playing the track. I'll be like, yo, I love your sound. You know, send me some stuff. Or, um, or the other way, you know, I'll just be like, hey, man, I played this track or I love your sound and just start start kind of relationships like that. That's what it's that's, been. That's almost the single most important way i found new talent is through the radio show. Mm. Where I get... All these promos that have already been filtered before they get to me. I have like a show producer, and we go through all these picks, and I go, "Who the fuck is this?" Mm-hmm. And it doesn't happen a lot, but I think every year, maybe three or four times, this happens. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I actively hunt this person down. Mm-hmm. I go, "We need to work on something. We need to do a remix." Usually, mm-hmm. it starts with like a remix thing. Yeah, because I'm always looking for good remixers. A lot of guys are focusing more on originals than remixes once they get established. Like they're, they blow up and two years later, they're like, I'm too big. Yeah. So, so we find that amazing talent. There's always this fresh pool of amazing producers out there. Speaking of remixes, I saw Dead Mouse at, uh, he played in New York last week and I heard he played obviously Longest Road. Nice. Yeah. That vocal is so good. Nice. Yeah. I, I tracked that in Silver Lake. Like I had to flip mattress up. <laughs> with this shitty $150 mic Studio Project C1 and that was the final vocal yeah wow. slaving over that vocal and mm. it was funny because it was more about layering the vocal than putting a bunch of plugins or having fancy here mm. but I, I love that you know you, you start these projects you start careers in music and you never know that you can do it with such basic equipment and you think you're going to need this one gear will create the hit record this mm. magic piano that has these special keys that you don't have and, and it's a fantasy but you have to have that delusion getting started, this delusions of grandeur. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't think like, oh, this is a realistic career choice. Because it's not. Yeah. But, but like, I think if you, if you were getting into this and you knew all the complications and the pressures, um, you probably would psych yourself out. I don't know. The 12-year-old Sid, would you, would you, oh, would you up still until go I, Up until I was like 24, I'd, at least once a week, I would wake up and be like, almost have a panic attack like what am i doing even through working with cedric like towards the beginning of it i still you know there's no job security you know it's such a it's such a crazy thing i look at my middle brother david he's a creative but he and he's an artist you know but he went the advertising route where there is a corporate structure and and stability and in music there there really isn't that even on the label side it's obviously it's not really necessarily the actual creating but you in A&R and you pick the wrong records for too many times in a row, you're not going to have a job, you know? And, and I think 
then they have their hotmail address, whatever. After. <laughs> I mean, not, I mean, obviously, they don't have that now, but I remember seeing there was so much clout that comes from mm-hmm. that at Warner Brothers or whatever mm-hmm. label. And then when people shift jobs so fast, it's like every six months now, mm-hmm. uh, your key man at the label is out and you're fucked. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's just, you know, it's going back to being an artist and it keeps you on your toes, you know? Yes, you. It, I think stress can kind of affect you creatively. But it's just about keeping it moving and believing in your sound and and uh, and being a little delusional. I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I could probably make it and doing this. I, I don't know. I never thought about this. I, I never. I just wanted to, you know, as far as making music, just wanted to make music, and to, because that's what I enjoy doing. Yeah, I think you know, you're creating music. You're almost creating fiction. You have to create a little delusion. If you mm. were totally, if it was a completely clear process of why you're doing it, what you're doing, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be as fun, and it people wouldn't even attempt to do it. Yeah. Uh, but I think it is funny. People think they're just... I mean, you have a feeling that you're born to do it, uh, but a lot of people go, oh, it's not a realistic choice. They don't even try it. And so many of the DJs... I remember going to school in Boston. There were so many DJs that were killing it in the scene, and it was very territorial with the, the resident DJs mm-hmm. in Boston, New York. Mm-hmm. And they just... They don't do it anymore. They don't DJ. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. Like these guys hung on to these residencies and the world moved on and they didn't build their brand. They didn't create intellectual property. They didn't create a catalog of music. Um, and they thought DJing would just stay the same. Yeah. But it's always shifting. Yeah. I mean, it's a different, it's definitely a different part of the brain. I think producing versus being a DJ. Not everyone can do both. I think my personality leans more towards being a producer versus being up there and I think it's something I I had to get comfortable doing there's incredible resident DJs who who you know that's their thing I, it is a dying thing though you know for sure yeah. although open formats come back to Vegas in a big way yeah <laughs> like, oh yeah I mean it's this full 10 year cycle mm-hmm. that's closed the loop mm-hmm. well, what do you think about all that like with chaos and and sort of evaporating residencies. Well, I got to shout out Marquis. I have a, they uh, gave me a mini residency this year, which is great. Awesome. They believed in me since the beginning. And, you know, obviously I'm still only playing kind of 126, 128 tempo stuff. I'm going a little more commercial, but it's, you know, it's changing. You know, Marquis never really paid those insane fees that some of these other places have paid for artists. You know, but what went down in chaos is, is crazy you know think about how much money they spent in that club how much money they lost you know how it affected even the artists that were signed there and you know you know damien hurst did well mm. he, said he got he was the sculptor that created the giant pool sculpture and, oh i hope he got paid oh, yeah, he, got his, he got 70 million dollars are you kidding wow. so he had the best residency of all because he doesn't have to show up is it still there it's all know. still there i mean they're gonna have to repurpose the groin yeah. of the sculpture for oh kid pool parties that's crazy. But yeah, I was talking with Ryan, yeah. Cascade, like, yeah. you know, I don't know what's happening with all that, but yeah. it's a mess because I think money aside, mm-hmm. it's it's a mess when you have your schedule sorted out and you've, you've yeah. committed to yeah. time, to dates, and then uh, and then you've said no to other offers. You've, you've had an opportunity yeah. to cost. It's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You went there, leaving somewhere else. So everything's relationship-based. So it's I think it, it's definitely affected a lot of a lot of people think about all the people who how many did they people did this place employ you know think about those people uh, I don't know Vegas is just ever changing it's it's own it's not even really part of earth I think yeah. like 
It's an island. Yeah. In the desert. Yeah. That you can have a lot of fun. But it does seem like there are, the trend is, it's much more conservative with the residencies. There are many residencies. Mm. I'm doing a similar thing mm. uh, at Mandalay. Like, I'm not doing the 20 date insanity. Mm. Even Calvin's residency is not a. I think it's because he's right. doing Ibiza. Oh, this right. summer. Maybe I was just heading back to the beach. Yeah. I went there for the first time this summer. Ever? First time ever. ever? Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Did you, what'd you think? I thought it was cool. I missed the, I mean, thankfully I didn't go in August. I went in September. It was still mm. pretty busy. It was just funny that it was actually a real island with real things happening mm. besides the dance world. Like I thought it would just be like everybody is all just clubbing all the time, but there's farms and mm. there's wineries. It was a beautiful spot. Mm. Went to Mallorca for a little while. But you've played, I mean, you played in uh, Opium, Barcelona, right? Yeah. So my family's from Spain. And yeah, Opium, they've been supporting me for a while. I was really this guy, Frank Caro, was one of the residents at Opium. After No came out, he messaged me. And he's like, I never met him before or anything. He's like, hey, I heard your family, is you're originally from Spain. Like, your family's from Spain. If you're ever out here in the summer, like, let me know. Like, I'll get you a date at Opium. And that's how that relationship started. So I, I played there a bunch. Yeah, Spain has changed a lot, though. You know, I was just in Madrid, and it's insane how, like, I went to this, I played in this club, and I had played there. I had gone to it maybe a year ago, and they were playing, like, cool tech, housey stuff, and it was just, reggaeton has taken over all of Spain. You know, that's all people want to listen to. I, I, want, I, I don't want to generalize that much. I think the underground scene is still thriving, like, very, like, proper underground stuff. But as far as, like, slightly more commercial dance, house tempo stuff it's really non-existent so it's pretty crazy wow. yeah is it changing now with the elro with the family no that they have their thing that they, they are crushing it i mean elro leans more towards underground it's the people is the background yeah to an extent to right? an extent it's more about the show yeah but they're booking like it's it's kind of they feed each other i think like they are putting curating like really great lineups and stuff i heard actually bitha is gonna have I think it's Amnesia's gonna have a regga- like a Latin reggaeton night, wow. which is unheard of, you know. Like, so I'm curious how that's gonna affect Ibiza. Obviously, Ibiza's kind of I wouldn't say what's happening in Spain's happening there, but it's it's obvious that it's you know music is changing um, for better or for worse, I guess. What do you think is causing this shift with globalization? Is it latent cultures uh, in South American music culture getting exported in Central America that's been a little bit unheard because of the, the the radio system in the US and in Europe or what's what's pushing this I don't know I mean that's a really good question I think like um, Despacito was like a really barrier breaking song you know um, so I think that helped in a way being from Spain like I would go in the summers and like you're in a pub or something and they're playing mostly Latin stuff obviously now more than ever there's like the artists that are doing the reggaeton are like real personalities i think like jay balvin and bad buddy and stuff so I, I think that has an influence on like it connecting with like american culture in a way more than say some of the people were doing it before it seems like maybe before there was more of a paywall in terms of access to the music where now if people have for nine bucks a month or whatever it is i think it's in brazil it's probably like four dollars a month mm. to have access to spotify where these these songs can rise in the charts Mm-hmm. Uh, and be pushed by because that's all it takes to have access to the song versus having to buy it and make that physical purchase yeah in regions where people didn't even have a lot people don't even have bank accounts yeah so true. few of those purchases yeah 
Yeah, we'll see where it goes next. So, yeah. so okay, you got the record label, you got new releases coming up, any other big ventures happening? You're just focusing on music, head down, yeah, touring? Yeah, that's it, man. It's, it's, it's so hard just to do that, I think. You know, we, this summer was a, kind of the first summer that I felt like I didn't have any time to make music. So now, you know, at the start of this year, it was having the time and kind of refocusing and saying, okay, I don't want to get... I don't want that to happen again, where I feel like I'm a little nervous that I don't have enough releases lined up. So it's now just locked in and finishing as much music as possible so we can plan ahead and release stuff when we want to, not feel rushed or... You're staying in New York, you're not going to move to L.A.? No, I, I I will say, though, I will probably... Like what I did this week, I think every time I have a show in L.A., I'm going to spend a week just to do writing sessions, see people... And it's because that's the one thing, you know, I, I think it's my I like to be in the studio by myself. I don't know how you like to work, but I like to be in my own space and just be able to experiment and be creative. But at the same point, you know, there's not that many songwriters in New York. Everyone, most people are in L.A., you know, it is crazy. Yeah, I, I did. When I moved here, I didn't predict that it would be this gold rush happening. Mm. I had a gut feeling that mm. a lot of people that I respected and loved this when I was making Deep House mm. and all that. They were all here, mm. strangely enough, here and in San Francisco. And the mm. San Francisco scene kind of, that really changed. Mm. But it, it was strange that it became this epicenter where I said it was weather, women, and work. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, now, so. it's, now it's babies and domestic animals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost there. But yeah, I love New York, man. There's something, there's something about it, I think. Like, you know, I can get pretty lazy. And I think New York keeps me from that keeps me focused you know everything is I think moves a little quicker it's an energy yeah yeah and you know but it's not that far so I will be making more trips out to LA but not no planning not planning on moving you know we gotta go next time in New York if you're around have you ever been to Blue Hill at Stone Barns no it's like this Michelin restaurant but it's out upstate near Austin oh okay like you can take the train up or drive Mm -hmm. up but some of the best food in the world. Yeah. And they grow everything on the farm. It's like an old uh, Rockefeller estate. Oh, wow. I had never heard of that. This guy yeah. invents his own plants and stuff. It's incredible. That's great. But they have a restaurant, uh, I think Lower East Side, they have a, a more calm, subdued version. One of the mm. few like quieter restaurants in New York where you can actually have a conversation. Mm. <laughs> uh, we'll do it. We'll grab dinner next time. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, Appreciate thanks it. for having me. All right, so there you have it, my interview with Sid for Airwave. Thank you so much for tuning in. Had a great long chat with him. Uh, Lots of really juicy details in there. The whole process of getting his Grammy, um, getting the proper credit where it was due. So that was a really key story, I felt like, in his evolution as a producer and earning that respect. So great to hear all the projects he's working on, all his collaborations, uh, things with Don Diablo, Galantis, Cascade. So Big fan of his stuff. Honored to have him on the podcast. Excited to see where he takes his music next. And excited to see what happens with his label, Night Service Only. So keep an eye on that. Uh, That's part of Spinnin' Records. And stay tuned. We'll be back next week with more interviews. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. 
Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. Thank you.